we went in uh, Thursday. Amy and I went back um, at MD Anderson to the wing where he's receiving chemo. Sat with him the last few minutes. He was uh, receiving a treatment. And um, he'll have several more weeks here of treatment where he goes in and gets his treatments and, and all the things that are a part of that process. And, and so, but physically, he, he feels like he's doing pretty well. Spiritually, he has ups and downs. He has dark days and he has bright days. Um, but it's so crucial that you continue to pray because you, you don't realize that as you pray for him, God strengthens him. God strengthens Lisa and uh, strengthens their children. So don't grow weary of doing good. Don't get tired of praying and think, well, it's not really doing anything. It is, it is having an impact. So continue to do that. We also got to share a little time with Brad and Stacy Booth, who we prayed for some time back. Stacy, you know, was part of the ministry here at Grace and moved back to Birmingham and married um, a young man through the Camps Outreach Ministry of Samford. And Brad has a type of cancer similar, but a little different than Dave's. He uh, he was there getting his first reports, um, and he was able to encourage, and Stacy was able to encourage Dave and Lisa, and Dave and Lisa them. So it was a great great time. And uh, Stacy and Brad want to thank you also. That's the first thing they said was uh, they had heard that we took time to pray for them, and they wanted to thank you that you would think of them uh, and pray for them and continue to do that. He's got a long, long treatment cycle, and, um, you know, we just need to be lifting them up. So thank you for that, and I just wanted to give that short report. And it's good to be home. As I was flying yesterday, um, it's about a two-hour flight. We were in a smaller aircraft, CRJ-900. It goes really fast. I told Aaron it's like... Uh, you know, it feels it, it feels so strange to, once you've been on a bigger plane to be in that small one that just jumps into the air. It's just like you just can't wait to get there, you know. And it's traveling along about 550 miles an hour, and you're, we were cruising altitude about 32,000 feet. And I looked down out of the plane. I was holding Hope, and Amy was sitting next to me, and all these people on the plane. And so I had kind of this myopic view of what's going on. I'm, I'm looking at the faces and the people and what are these people doing. And I got real close up and you can forget, believe it or not, those who have traveled a lot on planes, you know this, you almost forget you're moving. You almost forget that you're even in the air until you look out the window and then there's these specks below you of plots of land, acres big, you know, and rivers and, and all of that. And you get such a wide view. There was a lot of cloud cover and then it would break free. The clouds would be open and you could just see for what were miles out below you. And, uh, and you got the, the larger macro view of the trip, 32,000 feet high, traveling some hundreds of miles at hundreds of miles an hour and, and doing, uh, doing something that just still fascinates me. Amy turned to me, we were leaving the runway and she said, how does this thing fly? And, you know, and, and it still freaks you out a little when you think about that fact, that fact that, um, you're up above the earth so high. Things look so small. Things that on the ground look so big. And obstacles like the Mississippi River, which we flew over, look so imposing. But from our view of 32,000 feet, it's nothing. It looks like you could just step across a creek in your backyard or a ditch. It looks so small. The book of Ephesians is that 32,000 foot look at history, at time. 
Paul is giving to us in this book the scope of redemptive history in a few short words, in a couple of chapters, and then he applies that into our life, the very close-up view. He does that intentionally. So you're really high, you're looking down on all this stuff, and it looks minuscule, but the reality is when you're close to it, and your friend's dying, or your marriage is busting up, or or you you've lost your job, or your child is going through severe struggles spiritually or mentally, or whatever your your world looks like right now. It's imposing. It scares you to death. It looks like there's no way that I can overcome. There's no way that I can get past this obstacle. And you're ready to give up. And what Paul knows is if you have the background, if in your mind you have a true faith in the big view, the redemptive plan, if you have that faith, then when you apply that into your daily life, those seemingly impossible obstacles become less impossible. Because all things are possible with this great God who before the foundation of the world planned out all of history so that His glory would be had and His people would be saved. Now you hear, like Brad and Stacy from the doctor, your prognosis is somewhere between three and five years and you're 26 years old. What seems to be imposing becomes a creek. Because as he said to us, as he was sharing his story, you know, I couldn't sleep the other night and I was just sitting there praying and reading the Scriptures and praying and reading the Scriptures and pleading with God for some hope. And then into my heart flooded the light rays, the beams of what it would be like to be in Christ's likeness, in His presence. And I was thankful that I got, I'm going to get to do that soon rather than later. When you have... The 32,000 look at history, and like Ephesians 1, 2, and the beginning of 3, when you have that look at history, when you know whatever is happening to me today plays into the overarching plan of God for all of the universe, for His glory, and our good as His children, then you can say, cancer is not an obstacle, it's a release from this sinful life into the presence of Christ. Can I get there? And if you don't have that view, you become bitter and angry. And you begin to think fatalistically as if this world has no purpose, you have no purpose, your sickness has no purpose, you have no hope. You have nothing which to hang your life on, no pegs to hang your life on to make it make any sense. It's just random and it's cruel. And so Paul, in all of his epistles, all of his letters... He's, he's working hard at the beginning to build a theology so he can then apply it into your life and apply it into my life. Okay? So that's what we've been doing in Ephesians chapter 1. And today is going to be a broad look at Ephesians. We're not looking at one specific text because some of you, thank goodness our church is growing, and some of you weren't even here when we did chapter 1, so you have no idea what, it, what we did there. And I'm just going to kind of catch us up today, and then we'll start in chapter 2. Okay? But... Today's title of the message is the same as the sermon series. Ephesians, marvel at God's grace. That's really what Paul wants us to do, is look at God's grace and just be amazed by it. Just be overwhelmed by it, okay? 
And so as we look here at the text, we, we, we realize that what Paul's doing is building, he's building this doctrine for us as a scheme and as a, as a outline to which we can put the meat of our life on. It's like the skeleton. The doctrine is the skeleton that gives rigidity to the body so that you're not a lump of jello just kind of wobbling to and fro. Doctrine is like your skeletal system. It's not on the outside. It's the deep core that holds everything else together. If you don't have it, you'd be a blob on the ground. You would go with the wind of doctrine to and fro and be tossed here and there. And you wouldn't have any hope. But with doctrine, you're strong and rigid and able to encounter all of life's curveballs, which to God aren't curveballs, but they're curveballs to us, things that don't fit in our realm of thinking. You're able to take those things, though they're still difficult, And because you have right doctrine, they now become a blessing rather than a a crushing blow. Okay? Ephesians is one of the greatest books in the New Testament. If it has been by most people, most scholars believe it is the greatest book in all of the old, all of the New Testament. Um, Sam Storm in his introduction to the book uh, says that Samuel Taylor Coleridge called this book the divinest composition of man. J.A. Robinson, when he was describing it, said that this, this Ephesians is the crowning jewel of all of the apostles' writing. This is it, Ephesians. F.F. Bruce called this the quintessence of Paulinianism. And, and even the Catholic scholar Raymond Brown says that only Romans could match Ephesians as a candidate for the, for the uh, exercising of the most influence on Christian Christian thought and spirituality. And some of you would would say Paul's greatest book was Romans. Okay? But, uh, and you wouldn't be wrong. I mean, we don't no need to argue and quibble over it. It's all the Word of God, right? But Ephesians, what makes it so masterful is it takes this broad look and then it's in a short span it hammers home the ethics of a Christian life. Romans is a long treatise. And it's complicated at points, and people get confused and twisted in there and can't... But Ephesians is not like that. Ephesians is, is, is to the point with this doctrine and then applies it directly into life. It, it is, as uh, Klein Snodgrass has said, that pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written by any human. Pound for pound. So he's, he's admitting Romans has great influence, but it's much bigger. So like the lightweight boxer, this packs the punch. This is it. Pound for pound, the greatest book ever written, possibly. This letter is like pure music, John McKay writes. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. But before we look at Ephesians, we need to we need to think about what is Paul writing about? What is his purpose? And for that, I turn to Ephesians chapter one, verses nine and ten. Just look with me quickly at that in the middle of his blessing prayer, his 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 overabundant, joyful adoration of God. This is what he says. God was making known to us the mystery of God's will according to God's purpose, which God set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's the purpose. If we just want to talk, the theological purpose for Paul in Ephesians to the people in Asia Minor 
through the church at Ephesus is this. I want you to know that God has in His will purposed to sum up everything in Christ so that everything in heaven and everything on earth has a place and a purpose in the plan of our great Father in heaven. That's what Paul wants us to know. And when we get done with Ephesians, if we don't know that, then we have failed. We have failed. Ephesians is hammering this point home over and over. And he does it throughout the book. And, you know, this book has had great influence throughout centuries. Sometimes it's hard to think about a book in terms of centuries or millennia now. We're over two millennia removed from when he wrote this. Thousands of years have passed. A couple thousand. It's easier sometimes to take that close-up view. And so... I just want to share with you how Ephesians impacts reality. I've shared pieces of this before, but I want to share it with you again. I grew up um, and, and had what some would say was an all-American life in some ways. From the outside, it really was. Um, I, I really only my life as a baby, my father abandoned our family. And uh, I grew up with a with a stepfather who adopted me as his son. And there were many trials throughout my younger years. But about the age of 10, 11, 12, things kind of started turning for me, turning to a positive. My chi- my early childhood um, is not something to write home about. OK, and I'm not complaining. I had it pretty easy as compared to a lot of people. But it wasn't a lot of. Happy killjoys, okay? I mean, happy joyful days. It, there was some hard days there. But about 10, 11, 12, things seemed to turn, and it turned around athletics. Um, and I'm not the greatest athlete, but in a small town, I was good enough to be recognized for my ability and promoted because I was, I was the kid that talked a lot. Imagine that. My grandmother says the difference between me and my son Noah is only one thing. When I'd come visit her... I talked if she would listen. Noah talks if she listens or doesn't. <laughs> it runs in the family. What can I say? But because of those two things, because I had some ability, though I, I was not great, I was good. And I was a leader because I, I had the ability to impact other people on our teams. I was always promoted. Always looked at as the, the leader of the team. From about ten forward. Okay. And it became for me Christianity. My experience told me and everyone around me told me I was saved because I could tell them Bible stories. And because I did the team prayer and the team chaplain services, I was the one who stood up and and talked about God. And everybody believed me to be a Christian, myself included. Be careful if you're here this morning. And your assurance of salvation is based on your parents' confirmation of your salvation, a teacher, a group. If somebody's told you and you kind of feel that way, be very careful. One of, I believe, Satan's greatest weapons in our society is just that. We are evangelical as a society. And if you're a good boy, and I was considered by most to be a great kid, and you don't do a lot of the outward bad things everybody talks bad about, you all of a sudden become a Christian. And so on, the, on me was laid this facade of leadership, Christian, um, and, and a guy that was most likely to succeed. I, hey, he's going to be great. 
We worry about everybody else, but not Carlton. Now, at 10, that's one thing, but at 16, that's dangerous. Because, see, in my, in my heart, I was not a Christian. In my heart, I was not living for Christ. I was living for my glory. I was living for who I am. And I, I, I could go out with the guys, my best friends, and no matter if we were two hours late for curfew, I could walk in their parents' house and explain it, and their parents said, okay, that's fine, you were with Carlton. That's dangerous. And I enjoyed the danger. And I lived a secret life that really, if you go back to my hometown, they don't know anything about it. Some of them are listening to this tape probably this in, on the Internet in a few couple weeks. They're going to say, God, he was a bad kid. And I'm sharing this for a purpose. Because in the close-up view of things at that moment, everybody would have said I was a Christian and I wasn't. The close-up view sometimes can fool you, change you, keep you from God. And then I went to college and met a guy who was serious about the Lord. And he saw something in me. And he, he was at my house not long ago. He said, I didn't think you were a Christian, but I knew you thought you were. And so he challenged me. You want to study the Bible? Yeah, man, I'll study the Bible. I grew up in church. I was born in church, as they say. I know the Bible. He said, well, choose a book. Choose a book. I thought, what are we going to do with a book of the Bible? We're going to study it verse by verse. And we're going to let God change our hearts. I'd never heard anything like that, ever. The book, the Bible, was about moral lessons for me to be a better person where I grew up. Or it was moral lessons about how bad the world is. And how sinners are sinners. But it was never about seeing God in His glory so that it transformed me. It just wasn't that. But being kind of cocky and arrogant, I said, oh sure, I'll do that. Let's study Ephesians. He said, you sure? Yeah, let's study Ephesians. He said, alright, this week's assignment is read it five times. I read through it. Thought, that's not so hard. Read through it again. Read through it a third time. The fourth trip through the book. It was like a light flipped on. And for the first time in my life, I knew life's not about me. Life's not about how good Carlton is. Life's not about me doing the right things outwardly so everybody will accept me and love me and call me a Christian. The purpose of God is to display His glory. And He's doing it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He has a plan which He laid down before the foundation of the world. So that all of His children will be saved through the one man, Jesus Christ. I had, I had tears unstoppable flowing down my, my cheeks. All I'd done was read, read the book. Now you can imagine as we went for two semesters through this book, verse by verse by verse... There were moment after moment after moment just like that for me. It was like my whole world was being torn apart. So, when you take the close-up view of the book of Ephesians, you can get caught on little topics, which are very important. But it's also important to back away from that short-term, small view and see the broader view. Because if we only have that short, close-up view, when we get to verses that tell us that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, and it was not for us that He did it, but He did it for Himself, you can lose all sense of what really is going on there, and you become embittered, saying, that's not fair. 
And so we're going to constantly in this book be going back and forth, back and forth. Small, large, small, large. And Paul does three things in this book. Three ways we can understand the book of Ephesians. The first one is the book of Ephesians is a book of prayer. It is a book of prayer. Nothing lifts our eyes to the throne of God more than praying. Praying in the Spirit lifts you from this world into that world. It gives you a a, a taste of what is to come. You're talking with God. And He is talking to you. And Ephesians is filled with prayer. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 is one prayer. An overflow of praise to God and thanksgiving for God's goodness towards us in Christ. He does that in a, in, in a, in a specific way and we're going to look at that in just a minute. And then you get to verse 15 through 21 and he is, I mean 23, and Paul is describing for us how he prays for the Ephesians. It's a pastoral prayer. Put in a letter to the people. Okay? So he's saying, Oh God, you are great and you are magnificent and you are glorious. Verses 3 through 14 in a prayer of blessing and thanksgiving. And then in verses 15 through 23, he transitions to say, Now this is how I pray for you, the church at Ephesus. Okay? And then in verse chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, we see another prayer for the church at Ephesus. This is a pure prayer. He's bowing his knee before the Father from whom every family, Gentile and Jew, draws its name on the face of the earth, that according to the riches of God's glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's interesting, his his prayer grabs all this doctrine, and he applies it right there, and listen to this. That's the way in Colossians he describes Christ. I want Christ to dwell in you, he says here in Ephesians, so that all the fullness of God might dwell in you. And in Colossians chapter 1, he says, all the fullness of God did dwell in Christ. And so, the image of God, which we lost at the fall, Paul in a pastoral prayer simply says, I want the image of God back in you through Christ. And so we have a book of prayer. And then in chapter 6, in chapter 6, at the armor of God passage that is so famous, everybody quotes and memorizes and studies. And we're just so fixated, as, as we should, on the pieces and parts of the armor. But look at verse 18. 6.18 says, put on the armor of God up there above. And then verse 18 says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and all supplication. To that end, keep alert in prayer with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, now is his prayer list, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. He's in prison when he writes this. That I may declare it it boldly as I ought to speak. So this is a book of prayer. In Ephesians, God, through Paul, is telling us prayer lifts us 
from this world to God's world, to the spiritual world that exists all around us. Secondly, the book of Ephesians is a book about God. Now, I know you say, well, all of them are a book about God and they are. But this very specifically is a book about God and who God is. You have to kind of know who he's writing to. Ephesians was written to a mixed congregation. By mixed, I mean Gentile and Jew. The Jews in the area of Asia Minor had begun to evangelize. And being their evangelism, their main target had been Gentiles in this area. And the Gentiles are being saved. And they're being added to the church. And now Paul's writing a letter to them. The Gentiles have very little, these Hellenistic religions are what they came from. They have very little connection to the Hebrew faith. A lot of them didn't know about the God of the Old Covenant when they were saved. They knew very minimal. And so what Paul does in Ephesians, I'm going to show you how he does it in Ephesians chapter 1, but he does it in some other places here. He shows it's a book about God. Specifically, it's a book about the triune God. Paul wants to make sure that the Gentiles that have now joined themselves through the Holy Spirit to the church understand we're not worshiping three deities. God the Father, Jehovah. God the Son, Jesus, separate entity. God the Holy Spirit. They're not three entities. They're one unity. One essence. Three persons. He does that in his prayer blessing. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two people already mentioned here. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And then he begins in verse 4 through 6 to talk about the role of God the Father. This is what God did. Even as He, God the Father, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. A community that is holy and set apart, and the characteristic of this community is love. Jesus said, the world will know you by how you love one another. And now Paul is saying... That's what God has done. He has chosen us in Christ before the world began so that we would be a community that is holy and blameless and characterized by the love of God. That's us. And it's all God's work. And He predestined us. God the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And it was according to the purpose of God's will. To the praise of God's glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, capitalized the Son. It's to the praise of His glorious grace, and He's done it on behalf of the Beloved One, Jesus Christ. Now, verses 7 through 11, or actually through 12, are going to give us the work of Christ. He gives us the work of God the Father, now He's going to give us the work of Christ. This is thoroughly a book about God, the triune God. We see it in this prayer. In Him we have redemption. Through, in Him, this time it's not God the Father, it's Christ. In Christ we have redemption through Christ's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of Christ's 
grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of God the Father's will according to God the Father's purpose, which God the Father set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of God the Father's will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of Christ and God the Father's glory. In Him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of of our salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed The third part of the prayer is about the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, you might wonder, why did Paul not put, like I was reading it, the specific first-person names in the text? And that's where I I want you to realize this is a book to teach the Gentiles and the Jews that we serve a triune God. He uses the pronouns so that they understand that this is one person, or excuse me, one essence with three persons. He doesn't get as specific as a first person in the writing, so that they're left to understand that all that's being done in this prayer by God is done by all of God, not just pieces and parts of God. The whole Trinity agreed to save, and they agreed to do it based on the plan of God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so he teaches about God. This is a book about prayer. This is a book about God. And finally, we can say this book is about evangelism. This book is about evangelism. And that's one of the weak spots for Grace Fellowship. It's one of the weak spots for us. It's difficult for us. And I hope that through this letter, through this time of journeying through this letter, we will be encouraged to be more bold in preaching the gospel. I believe we will be encouraged to do that. He does it in a very interesting way. In Ephesians chapter 1, we come in contact with the evangelist, the, the evangelist, God himself. Listen, if you're scared to evangelize, you're not out of the norm most everybody in this room, even the people you hold up as these great people of event of sharing the, the gospel, you think, man, that person, I wish I could be like them. They really do a good job of sharing the gospel. Trust me, they either are scared now or they have been scared to open their mouth and share the message. The, the way to move past fear in evangelism is to see that God is the evangelist. And Paul shows that in chapter 1. Notice in chapter 1, what do humans do to get saved? You can say it in this church. We'll let you. What do humans do in chapter 1? Shake your head like this. Nothing. Why? Because God is the mover. God is out, as Robert Robinson wrote, Searching for those who have strayed from the fold. God is the evangelist. And he didn't become an evangelist after man sinned. God was an evangelist before the world was created. So college students, when you're in the cafeteria, 
eating with the lost man or lost girl sitting across from you. And you're a little nervous that it's going to take street cred away from you to open your mouth and speak the gospel. Don't worry. God didn't worry about losing. He he wasn't concerned about being thought less of. He humbled himself and came in the form of a man, even a servant, to die on a cross. He is the evangelist. So when you open your mouth, your friend maybe loses a little respect for you. But what you have done is joined the all-powerful, all-knowing God in His work of evangelism. So it's a choice, right? Now I'll spread it out to all of us, not just preach at them. It's a choice we have, right? Who will we be with? Paul, in another letter he wrote, says this, If I begin to please men, then I've ceased to please God. So, would you rather please men? Then sit and be quiet. Don't say anything about Jesus. They will be pleased with you. And God won't be. Or you can open your mouth and you may not please them. They may reject it. They may reject you. But God is pleased. He is not telling you to do what He Himself has not done, people of God. He has gone before us in evangelism. He is the great evangelist in chapter 1. Now, chapter 2 begins to move towards our responsibility in this act of evangelism. It begins to take a slight step towards our responsibility. Still painting the picture of God saving us by His grace alone and His faith, faith and grace being a gift of God, He begins to transition in verse 10 of chapter 2. Look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. <clears throat> Gone is fatalism. If God wants to save people, God will do it. Not according to verse 10. Verse 10 says God's going to save people, and He's going to do it through you, your good works. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what we were recreated for. That's our new being was for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So yes, you are responsible, but you're responsible to only do what God planned before you were created for you to do. What a beautiful message that we now should just walk in them. What confidence? You want confidence to live a Christian life? You need Ephesians 2.10. You really do. We all need that to get in us and infect us to the point that we really believe it and put it in action. That God has created us as new creations in Christ to do good works, not on our own strength, but according to His grace, His plan, and His purpose. God is the the evangelist, and we're the little evangelist. We're the little ambassadors, messengers. And that's what Ephesians 6 is all about. Ephesians 6 says, if you're going to go out in the battlefield, you better get dressed. Get prepared. There's a war going on. And you're about to get in the middle of it as an evangelist. You think your life's difficult right now? Be, become an evangelist. 
Live your life in such a way that the gospel is preached and begin to open your mouth and preach the gospel and you'll get more fiery darts shot your way than you ever imagined. But all the while, you will gain the confidence that He is for you. So therefore, who can really be against you? All the while, in this war raging around you, you will say, God has hedged me in before and behind. He is my rock. He is my stronghold and fortress. He is my shepherd leading me through the valley of the shadow of death. If you want those verses to really be something you know, get in His work with Him. Jesus said it this way, The labor field, the harvest field is plentiful and the laborers are few. So pray that God would give you the Spirit so that you might go be a laborer in His harvest field. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. This ethnically divided church being united in Christ to become the little evangelist, only doing the work which the big evangelist, God Himself, has already prepared. So we know the end before we even read the beginning, don't we? Grace Fellowship, the gates of hell cannot stand up. To us in Christ. It doesn't say, notice in the verse that Jesus was, well, I'm quoting Jesus there, okay? Notice he doesn't say anything about us being behind the gate. Christian people aren't to be behind the gate. This isn't to be a hiding place from the world. Christian people are in armed formation, storming the gates of hell. The church will prevail. It will not fail. And gate the gates of hell itself, and all of the spiritual dominion and forces that are arrayed against us all around us, cannot withstand us. Because Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. That's what He means when He introduces Christ. Look in the first verse, and we're going to end with this. Listen, we are studying the book of Ephesians so that we will first know we are His child, and then we will behave in such a way as to be His child and to work in His harvest field for His glory. That's the purpose. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ, Messiah, promised one, Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and, notice, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament was written for us, on whom the end of the ages has come. And all I'm telling you is, we can have supreme and utter confidence in the work of God, in and through us and for us, because the one He promised from ages past has come. His name is Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Covenant writings, the Old Testament. God is often called Lord, and that is translated for us. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that word Lord is always translated kurios. 
So when Paul writes here, he says, Curios, Jesus, Christa. The Jews in the congregation immediately say, that's God. Jesus is God. And so, church, you may feel defeated, but we have God, the Lord, on our side. He is going as the warrior and commander of the Lord's army before us. So the walls and the gates of hell have no hope. They have as much hope as the walls of Jericho. They will tumble at His word. That's the confidence we should leave Ephesians with at the end of this long journey is God is the greatest evangelist of all time. He has planned out the strategy to reach His children in the world in every nation and ethnic group there is known to mankind. And no one can stop Him. He has arrayed an army in His grace. And now they are warring through prayer and through evangelism to storm the gates of hell that they may fall by the power of God and His grace. So now we're supposed to say, what are we waiting on? Right? What are we waiting on? What am I waiting on? And I think it's as simple as this. I'm often waiting on time. Waiting on time with the Lord. In communion and in real submission. I'm busy living my life and doing my works, which are not by the grace of God, but by my grace and by my work and by my power. And so as we close this sermon, it's been very broad and very big and lots of themes, not real specific. We'll get there next week. I want to close in calling you to come to Christ. Christian, we need to come to Christ every day in communion. 